This episode is brought to you by our incredible community of listener supporters on Patreon. Our Patreon offers listeners exclusive archival content, extended episodes, and access to community conversations diving deeper with past guests. Your monthly pledge ensures that For the Wild has the funding to keep producing informative, thoughtful, and rooted conversations and programming. All funding supports our small team of creatives, podcast production, and special For the Wild projects like our zines and slow study courses. To support us on Patreon, please visit patreon.com slash for the wild, or if you would rather make a one-time donation or recurring donation outside of Patreon, please visit for the wild.world slash donate. For the Wild podcast is brought to you in part by the Calliopeia Foundation and listeners like you. Calliopeia supports projects interweaving spirituality, culture, and ecology. We are grateful for their support and the support of grassroots contributions from listeners. To learn more about the Calliopeia Foundation, visit calliopeia.org. To make a donation to For the Wild, visit forthewild.world slash donate or support us through Patreon. Hello and welcome to For the Wild podcast. I'm Ayana Young. Today I will be speaking with Craig Santos-Perez. Craig is an indigenous Chamorro poet, scholar, activist, and educator from the Pacific island of Guahan, also known as Guam. In my own work, and I love how you described you know, literature as, as a vessel, or language as a vessel, and thinking about how poetry, literature, even music, can become that vessel of revitalization. Craig is the author of five books of poetry and the co-editor of five literary anthologies. He is an associate professor in the English department at the University of Hawaii, Manoa. He teaches Pacific Islander literature, creative writing, and environmental poetry. Well, Craig, thank you so much for joining me in conversation today in honor of your recently released eco-poetry book, Habitat Threshold. Thank you so much for having me, Ayana. It's an honor to be on For the Wild. I'm a longtime listener and have been for years inspired by the work that you have done. So thank you. Mm. Oh, wow. Thank you, Craig. That really means the world to all of us at For the Wild. We are doing our work behind the scenes. And when we reach people, especially like you, yeah, it just makes this work so much sweeter. So thank you for saying that. And I'm really excited to have this conversation. The whole For the Wild team was so stoked to have you on. So I know this conversation is going to be beautiful and I'm sure our listeners are going to eat up every moment. So yeah, I'm excited and I'm really, really looking forward to speaking about your book, Habitat Threshold. And in reading it, I was really struck by a particular sense of intimacy between you and the implications of a changing and polluted planet. I'm specifically thinking of your first poem, Age of Plastic, where you write, quote, My wife labors at home in an inflatable plastic tub. Plastic disrupts hormonal and endocrine systems. After delivery, she stores her placenta in a plastic freezer bag. Plastic is the perfect creation because it never dies. Our daughter sucks on a plastic pacifier. Whales, plankton, shrimp, and birds confuse plastic for food. The plastic pump whirs, 
breast milk drips into a plastic bottle. Plastic keeps food, water, and medicine fresh. Yet how empty plastic must feel to be birthed, used, and then disposed by us. End quote. So Craig, I'd love if you could share with us why it might be especially important to recognize the intimacy of these times, a tender recognition of what the world has become rather than an outright denial or reprimand. Well, thank you for that beautiful reading of my poem. I started my book thinking about plastic because of its ubiquity here in the Pacific. And furthermore, it's kind of omnipresence in our daily lives. And so, you know, thinking about how my daughter is birthed into this age of plastic in which she will, for her whole life, be surrounded by plastic and its, its dangers and threats made me think about our own human entanglements, not only in, the, in this manufactured synthetic world of plastics, but also you know, within our natural world as well. And so you know, that first poem is kind of an entrance into these entanglements and this complicated web in which not only my daughter is born, but in which we all live. And thinking about, as Donna Haraway puts it, to, to kind of live and be within the trouble and to think about not trying to transcend the world, but really to understand its intimacies and its entanglements. The Last Safe Habitat for the Kauai O'o, whose song was last heard in 1987. I don't want our daughter to know that Hawaii is the bird extinction capital of the world. I don't want her to walk around the island feeling haunted by tree roots buried under concrete. I don't want her to fear the invasive predators who slither, pounce, bite, disease, swallow, and multiply. I don't want her to see paintings and photographs of birds she'll never witness in the wild. I don't want her to imagine their bones in dark museum drawers. I don't want her to hear their voice recordings on the internet. I don't want her to memorize and recite the names of 77 lost species and subspecies. I don't want her to draw a timeline with the years each was first collected and last sighted. I don't want her to learn about the Kauai O'o, who was observed atop a flowering ohia tree, calling for a mate day after day, season after season, because he didn't know he was the last of his kind. Until one day, he disappeared forever into a nest of avian silence. I don't want our daughter to calculate how many miles of fencing is needed to protect the endangered birds that remain. I don't want her to realize the most serious causes of extinction can't be fenced out. I want to convince her that extinction is not the end. I want to convince her that extinction is just a migration to the last safe habitat on earth. I want to convince her that our winged relatives have arrived safely to their destination, a wondrous island with a climate we can never change and a rainforest fertile with seeds and song. 
your opening poem references the birth of your daughter and many other poems are reflections on parenting and the Anthropocene and the acute awareness of what the future holds for our children. As a father, I'm wondering if you could speak to what it means to parent in the Anthropocene, perhaps with particular attention to the need to instill notions of care, whether it's our own care and equipping them for what the future might hold, or creating a present world where care is valued. How has being a father changed your approach to this work? A wonderful question. Definitely becoming a new father five years ago, which coincided with many of these poems in the book, really changed my whole life and perspective. And as you mentioned, being a parent, I wanted what most other parents want is to love their children, to provide them with with food and a safe home and to give them a good education and a happy life. But parenting in the Anthropocene, as you put it, all those things become very difficult in the sense that our food systems are becoming more and more toxic. With climate change, the weather is becoming much more extreme, unpredictable, and dangerous. And becoming much more of seems like an impossibility to give our children this safe habitat, as the poem puts it. And of course, here in the Pacific, we you know, struggle with some unique circumstances, one of which is, of course, the endangerment and extinction of our native birds and native ecologies. And so in that particular poem, I'm thinking, you know, how am I going to teach my daughter about the fact that her homeland of Hawaii and Guam are both places where bird populations have dramatically declined? And so, you know, in that poem, it includes a lot of information about what she might learn about bird decline, but also my own desire to convince her that, as the poem says, extinction is not the end, but just a migration to the last safe habitat on Earth. So my own anxieties about telling her the hard truth of of the situation and trying to instead instill a different kind of imagination while she is still young and perhaps she might believe in the possibility that extinction is indeed not the end. I feel very ambivalent as a parent, as an indigenous father, as father to two indigenous girls who who will face other dangers as girls as well. And so, you know, that poem and a lot of my poems are, are really trying to confront that anxiety of being a parent in the Anthropocene, being an indigenous parent, being a parent in the Pacific. And so I'm very fearful for what the future holds. But as, as you put it as well, you know, I want to instill a sense of care and love and respect to other species, to more than human species, but also to the environment. And to try to ground that perspective within our own Pacific Islander beliefs about our connection and kinship with the environment. Oh, Craig, thank you so much for sharing the vulnerabilities of your anxiety and just that intimacy of parenting. I think that probably so many folks feel that way or feel something similar unconsciously or consciously. And You voicing that, especially in your specific situation, being indigenous, being in the Pacific Islands, it feels really important for us to hear that. And I'm sure a lot of folks are really resonating with that. And you're putting words to 
feelings that they may not be able to articulate. So thank you for sharing that with us. And we are, you know, holding this conversation amidst the coronavirus outbreak. And I know that each of us hold a multitude of feelings on this topic. And and so it feels impossible to not mention it or to have a conversation without assuming that the feelings awakened by this pandemic are not guiding us in some way. And I think many of us are awakened to the necessity of slowing down, both in the safety it affords us and our loved ones, but also the graciousness that is afforded to the earth when we slow down. Yet even amidst this time of pause, many of us feel the deep ramifications of slowing down within a capitalist system, which is to say that I think many of us are feeling a great degree of discomfort. Because this moment of pause is in conflict with the tightened grips of late-stage capitalism. So as an artist and writer and educator, I'm wondering if you could speak to these tensions. How will this period require a great deal of creativity from us when it comes to our production and consumption? That's a powerful question. You know, over here in Hawaii, we are sheltering in place. The public schools have been canceled. I'm a university professor. My, my classes have moved online. My students are, are back home with their parents or they have traveled out of state to return to their own home states. They're just starting testing here in earnest. And so the number of positive cases are going up exponentially. The healthcare system is, is stressed and, and will soon likely be overwhelmed here as in other places. I'm thankful that I'm still receiving a paycheck. Unlike many others, I'm able to continue to provide food and medicine for my family and my kids. And my, my daughter is also immunocompromised. So I'm, I'm feeling very fearful and, and protective at this moment. As you mentioned, at the same time, it, it is nice to see the levels of carbon emissions go down throughout the world. It's nice to see, uh, as folks have, have mentioned, for kind of the earth to take a breath and to pause and to see many you know, wild animals be able to come into the cities and, and to feel, feel safe in some ways without all the human cars or population. And I'm also feeling that slowdown in my own life where I don't have to drive to work. I've only been out twice over the last two weeks just to the grocery store. And we're cooking more at home. I have more time with, with my wife and kids. And so at a time where I feel deeply fearful, I've also felt a strange kind of peace being at home, being able to shelter in place. And of course, feeling almost a guilty sense of, of privilege as well that I, I do feel so safe in a way despite everything that's going on. Within a larger moment, I do hope that this pandemic will, will be a moment of transition and a moment of change, that we will question the neoliberal capitalist world that we live in and how it's wreaked havoc on the environment, on other species, on our own physical and mental health, that we will acknowledge the precarity that so many lives and so many people are in right now, thinking about those who are houseless or those who are incarcerated, who are now unemployed, those who have underlying health conditions, the elderly, that we do need to expand our web of care and to really change all these capitalist systems that are just destroying our lives and destroying the earth 
And so I do pray that everyone who is impacted will recover and will stay safe. And I hope that as it progresses and as we move further into this year, that we will make these deep changes to our society. And, you know, as an artist, poet, and educator, I feel like part of my job as well is to is to help that transition, whether it's through my poetry or through teaching or, or through activism, to contribute to that movement. And you know, I feel like your podcast is also a part of that movement. And so I'm hopeful and fearful at the same time as I shelter in place with my family. Care for World Refugee Day. Our daughter wakes from her nap and cries. I pick her up, press her against my chest and whisper, Daddy's here, Daddy's here. Here is the island of Oahu. 8,500 miles from Syria. But what if Pacific trade winds suddenly became flames and shrapnel indiscriminately barreling towards us? What if shadows cast upon our windows aren't plumeria tree branches, but soldiers and terrorists marching? Daddy's here, daddy's here, I whisper. Would we reach the Mediterranean in time? Am I strong enough to straighten my legs into a mast balanced with the pull and drift of the currents? Am I brave enough to bear her across the razor wires of foreign countries and racial hatred? Could I plead, please help us? Please just let us pass. Please, we aren't suicide bombs. Could I keep walking if my feet crack like halabi pepper fields after five years of drought, after this drought of humanity? Daddy's here. Daddy's here. Trains and buses rock back and forth, back and forth, back and forth to detention centers. But what if our desperate boat capsizes? Could I inflate my body into a buoy to hold her above rough waves? Daddy's here, daddy's. Will drowning be the last lullaby of the sea? Or will we carry each other towards the horizon of care? Now, I'd like to transition to a conversation on your homeland, Guahan. In your writing, you often recount the invisibility of Guahan, both in the abstract and the physical, in terms of its incredibly layered history under Spanish, U.S., and Japanese rule. So I'm wondering if you could share how this history and Guahan's status as an unincorporated territory shapes your writing, work, and environmental activism. Thank you. You know, yes, yeah, so I grew up on Guahan or Guam, born there and lived there till I was 15 years old. And then my parents decided to migrate to California, which is where I finished high school and college. And so when my family first migrated, it was a strange experience because no one in California knew where Guam was or what Guam was. And 
you know, I have a vivid memory of the first day of my new high school in California when I was a sophomore. The teacher asked where we were from. And when I said Guam, he had never heard of it. And so he pointed me to a large world map on the classroom wall to point it out to him. And like many maps, Guam wasn't actually on the map because it's such a, a tiny island. And, you know, I remember I had to say, you know, I'm from an invisible island that should be right here, but it's not. And I always carry that, carry that memory with me because I felt so invisible at that moment. And that kind of sparked my motivation to, to educate people about Guam's history and our indigenous Chamorro culture through poetry and through my writing. And so, you know, that was kind of what, what led me to try to make our island more visible to the world. And part of that is, is of course, explaining the complexity of Guam as a so-called unincorporated territory. Most Americans don't know what that means or even that the United States still has territories. And then to explain the complicated history of Guam first being a Spanish colony, starting you know, in the 16th and 17th centuries, and becoming a, a US colony after the Spanish-American War of 1898, being occupied by the Empire of Japan during World War II for three years, and then the US military returning, and once again, Guam becoming, and uh, remaining to this day a U.S. territory. So we are U.S. citizens. We learn English from school and from the American media, from American TV and, and movies. And then many of, of my people have also migrated to the States so that today, actually, and quite sadly, there are more, more of us who live away from our home islands and actually still live on our home islands. And so I also write about that experience of not only being colonized and being from a small island, but also our experiences as migrants and adjusting to a new life within our own U.S. diaspora. In discussing colonization, I can't help but think about the function of language. To preface, under U.S. rule, Chamorro was outlawed and English was mandated. Then under Japanese rule, both English and Chamorro were outlawed in favor of Japanese. So I would love if you could speak to this history and the importance of reviving the Chamorro language in your own work as a guiding vessel for these precarious times. Yes, sadly, the, the history of language colonialism on Guam is, is a violent and tragic one. My grandparents, for example, when they were growing up in the new American schools, they were actually punished physically and mentally if they were caught speaking Chamorro in school. And even when the U.S. authorities were teaching the kids how to play baseball, for example, they outlawed speaking Chamorro on the baseball field. So even that became an English-only space. And so the consequence of, of this is that today our indigenous language is classified as endangered. Many of our, our native speakers are over the age of, of 60. And sadly, many, many families, the language did not get passed down because we saw kind of English as the only way to succeed, whether it was in the school system or even to get a job. And so the situation is very dire. However, there are many Chamorro language revitalization activists and initiatives happening now so that hopefully in future generations, the language can 
come back to life, you know, throughout the islands and of course throughout the diaspora. In my own work, and I love how you described, you know, literature as, as a vessel or language as a vessel and thinking about how poetry, literature, even music can become that vessel of revitalization. And so even though my work is still predominantly in English, I try to include the Chamorro words that I know and that I am, of course, relearning as well into my writing to kind of honor our language and also create space for it in my own life. And so, you know, it's a long journey to revitalize a language, but I'm very hopeful that perhaps my children or even their children will will be the generation that will, will bring it more fully back to life as we are seeing today, the seeds of the language being replanted and you know, some of its blossoms showing up in, in our, our writing, our literature. Oh, I'm so happy to hear that. And I'm also thinking about how over a quarter of Guahana is solely occupied by military bases. The series of nuclear bombs dropped throughout the Marshall Islands and the military's lease of Kwajalein Atoll, where the U.S. operates a multi-billion dollar base and will continue to do so through the year 2066. So yeah, I'd love if you could share a little bit about the implications of ongoing military presence and your work, and perhaps the parallels between the military and tourism when it comes to the extraction and desecration of land and culture throughout the Pacific. Yes, the you know, the history of language and cultural colonization in the Pacific is, is truly tragic. And when you put it in the larger context of militarization in the Pacific, that trauma is truly compounded. You know, as you mentioned, you know, nearly 30% of my home island is occupied by U.S. military bases. The history of nuclear testing and ongoing militarization in the Marshall Islands is just one of the deepest human human tragedies of the 20th century. And of course, here in Hawaii also, about a quarter of the island's landmass is, is militarized as well, Pearl Harbor and Indo-Pacific Command being stationed not far from where, where I currently live. And so this speaks to the long history of U.S. military interests in the Pacific, their desire to control not only the Pacific, but of course their interests in Asia. There are also bases, as you know, in, in Okinawa, South Korea, the Philippines. And so the U.S. military footprint here is massive and it has caused so much environmental damage. And I know you, you've had previous episodes on For the Wild, you know, speaking to this legacy. And so it's hard to speak about because it is so personal and it's affected so many of my family members as well as our ancestral lands and waters. But it is truly the, the most destructive force on the planet and in human history. And so much of our lands and waters have been contaminated and polluted and not only, you know, and stolen as well to make these military bases. And then, of course, our islands are used then to launch bombs and warfare into places like Vietnam, for example. And so this has caused so much damage. And it's even what is so terrible as well is that they have recruited so many of our people to fight in the U.S. military. 
And for example, my father was drafted into the U.S. Army to fight in Vietnam. I have so many uncles and cousins who have enlisted in the military and have fought in Afghanistan, Iraq, in Korea. And we have not only Chamorro people, but Hawaiians, Samoans, other Micronesians. We have the highest rates per capita of military enlistment because it is often the only opportunities that we have in our islands for employment or you know, other kinds of training. And so you know, not only are lands and waters militarized, but our people and our culture and our bodies have become militarized as well. And so this kind of militarization has seeped into every part of our lives as Pacific Islanders. And it's something that myself and many others have been involved with the demilitarization movement here, the movements to protect our islands from further military development. And it's, it's a struggle and we've suffered so many losses. You know, a lot of the environmental contamination has led then to health problems. So we have really high rates of cancer from this contamination from fallout of nuclear testing. And it's a tragic history, but it's one that we live with, we're entangled into, and one that we are, we are struggling against because it is such a destructive force. You know, and speaking of climate change, of course, you know that the U.S. military is the largest single carbon emitter in the world. So that ties us not only being in the front lines of climate change, but connected to being on the front lines of U.S. militarization as well. When I was reading some of the statistics, I was seeing that Chamorros enlist in the U.S. armed forces at some of the highest rates in the nation. During the Vietnam War, Guahan had one of the highest killed in action rates per capita. And in, the, in 1980, the Department of Defense estimated that 5% of Guahan was in the military, which was 12 times the national average. And then there's other things I was reading about, just the dead arms of staghorn coral that are bleached and the typhoons, you know, what you're talking about with climate change and the seasons getting drier and then the military runoff just poisoning the water reservoirs that, like I said, are being exacerbated by the drying with climate change. It's just, you know, I'm just looking through my notes right now and it's really serious. I was reading that residues of Agent, Agent Orange left from the Vietnam War and other toxic waste from the military bases are contaminating Guahan. So yeah, it's just really, it's, I don't want to say it's shocking because it's not because we have such a horrendous dominant culture. But the fact that so many of us in the States have no idea the type of poisoning and desecration that Guahan has been facing for so many decades and just how the the militarism and the tourism are swing arms of the same destructionary path. I, I don't know if that's the way to say it, but I, it seems like they're both really detrimental. And if you did want to say anything else about tourism while we're still on this topic, I'd love to hear that. Yes, thank you for, for making that connection again. Yeah, so basically Guam and even here in Hawaii, our two main industries are the military and tourism. And just as a lot of our people enlist in the military, we also work in the tourism industry, whether you know at the hotels or, or doing tours or working in, in retail, at restaurants. And sadly, our islands are, are seen by the colonial powers as either only useful as a military base or as a tourist destination. 
And of course, both of these industries are very exploitative. Tourism is, is also ecologically damaging as well, you know, both by the development of hotels and shopping malls and restaurants, which often result in the disturbance and unearthing of ancestral burial grounds. And of course, tourists themselves have a very high carbon footprint because they obviously fly into our islands. But the tourism industry, whether it's you know from rental cars or from buses, they cause a lot of environmental damage as well. You know, even you could think about something like the use of sunscreen by tourists. It has really impacted the coral reefs. And so these industries are connected as well in the sense that a lot of military personnel come to Hawaii or to Guam as part of their vacation or R&R as recreation. And, you know, so you often see tourists mixing with military personnel on the beaches. And so that's a kind of vivid, almost postcard image of the connection between tourism and militarism and how they both exploit our islands for various kinds of, of capitalist endeavors, whether that's war making or tourist making or paradise making, if you will. And so, you know, a lot of activists are trying to imagine different ways to envision our islands, not simply as a military base or a tourist site, but instead as, as sacred islands, as our ancestral lands and waters that need to be protected from these capitalist industries and how we need to imagine more sustainable ways to build an economy, and you know, especially a circular economy that treats the land and water with respect, doesn't just see the land and water as, you know, exploitative commodities or as firing ranges or bombing ranges. And so the tourism industry tries to create this image of paradise, but it really just hides the crimes of empire that have been going on here in the Pacific. As you mentioned, you know, most people don't know the, the exploitative history and so I think to me, that's the power of literature and art and you know, your podcast as well to expose these injustices and to amplify the voices that are advocating for environmental justice, for nuclear justice, for military justice. And so, you know, I hope our voices continue to be heard as we critique these industries. Me too, Craig. <laughs> Yes, we must keep critiquing. And I think more and more people are listening and awakening in these really complex times. So I, I do think that we're getting through and staying on this topic in preparing for this conversation and, and listening to you now. Of course, I'm reminded of the many narratives that speak to the struggle for dominance over the Pacific where strings of islands that were or are rendered invisible on geographic maps like you were mentioning when you were talking about your school classroom, and they're just such strong focal points for global powers. For example, Guahan's deep water part and geographic location has made it one of the most strategic bases in the world. And so on one hand, I'm endlessly fascinated by the geopolitical context, but I also can't help but think about how this framing in its attempt to reveal injustice, is incredibly limiting. So how do you broach these topics and Guahan's existence in a way that both critiques U.S. empire, 
but doesn't limit the experience of place to that of U.S. imperialism, especially given the importance of what recognition and visibility and the telling of history can do as an act of repair. That's a powerful question. For me, so much of my writing, while it is about protest and critique, it is also so much about honoring and celebration of my culture and my wife, who's Hawaiian, you know, of her culture as well, and, and honoring the place I live now and honoring, you know, all the peoples of the Pacific. And, you know, I try to, you know, not only honor our cultures, but to also kind of celebrate and highlight our resiliency, our survival, and the power in our our struggle as well. And it's, it's amazing to me as we discuss all these traumas and devastations that our people here have experiences, and yet our language is still here. And our dances, our cultural practices, our arts are still blossoming. And to me, that is just a beautiful statement of cultural resiliency. And, you know, I write a lot about my family as well and thinking about, yes, there are all these historical colonial forces that have shaped our lives, but at the same time, we continue to have our own agency and to try to build the lives that we imagine and to imagine new worlds and sustainable futures. And so, you know, in my work, I also try to you know, capture those feelings of strength and hope and change and transformation and being grounded in in indigenous and Pacific Islander beliefs and practices. And to me that, you know, that really gets me through as well because I, I so deeply believe that literature can inspire us, but it also empowers us, it dignifies us, it humanizes us in a way that has been denied by the colonial powers. And so to me, I think centering my poetry within our own belief systems, within our own genealogies and kinship networks, and within the sacredness of, of our lands and our waters, to me, that's, that's the kind of the heartbeat of the work that then leads to powerful critiques of geopolitics and of colonialism and nuclearism and all these mm -hmm. other issues that we're dealing with. And so, you know, to me, that's a, that's the joy of the work. And that's the heart of literature is really to exemplify our humanity and our survival. Hmm. Beautifully said, Craig. Now, as an activist, I know you advocate for the protection of land, water and culture from the ongoing and coalescing threats of colonialism, militarism and capitalism. One area that I'm hoping we can discuss is that of deep sea mining, as it's incredibly pertinent to the Pacific, but rarely discussed. With the push for green energy, companies are moving to the deep sea to mine cobalt and nickel, both of which are necessary for the production of lithium-ion batteries. Now, currently, nickel and cobalt are mined on land, typically in the Democratic Republic of Congo, which houses over half of the world's cobalt, but an area of ocean located between Hawaii and Mexico, known as the Clarion-Clipperton Fracture Zone, it's a mouthful, is believed to hold six times more cobalt 
and three times more nickel than all known land-based areas. So I'm wondering if you can discuss this coalescing of capitalism and colonialism and the gravity of what it means to mine from the life-giving ocean. Well, thank you for bringing up this very important issue. Yes, deep sea mining is is one of the most terrifying new extractive industries here in the Pacific. And looking at some of the mining equipment that they're designing and their plans to destroy the deep sea surface is truly something that I hope everyone becomes educated on because it has the potential you know, not only to destroy the habitats of, of the deep sea creatures, but also to destroy the seafloor itself and so much of that complex ecology, which we barely understand. And so this is something that, you know, I know many, many Pacific activists are concerned about and are trying to resist and struggle against and, you know, throughout the Pacific. And in a cultural sense, obviously, we consider the ocean as the source of all life, as Mother Ocean as perhaps the most sacred being on this planet. And just the thought of doing this kind of violence to the deep sea is truly devastating. And so this is something we have to critique and we have to stop. In connection to green technologies, it is unfortunate that so much of what we consider the green economy is based on still extractive industries still on the exploitation of the so-called third world and the damage it's going to cause to countries in Africa or here in the Pacific, that to me this is very problematic and I think forces us to really think more deeply about the green economy. And, you know, unfortunately we see a lot of examples of, of greenwashing these new sustainable technologies. You know, at the same time, we see a kind of blue washing, you know, with deep sea mining in some ways or in other kinds of blue technologies like offshore wind or other kinds of wave energy, which sound great in principle, but sometimes they do have destructive qualities to them that we have to be mindful of. And so, you know, for me as an activist, it is also important that we continue to critique these industries that too often become neoliberal themselves and they try to profit from the green or blue initiatives that we see happening. I'm so glad that you brought it up and that we'll see what happens. I know many people are struggling against it. Who knows what will happen to the funding of these industries after this pandemic. And so it seems like everything is changing, but everything is still under threat. And so as as activists and, and even as, as artists and writers, we need to uh, remain vigilant about protecting our sacred spaces. Mm-hmm. Yes, I absolutely agree. And I just wanted to mention a few other things around this deep sea mining, which is something that I'm just learning about. But one pressing matter is that draft exploitation regulations for deep sea mining in areas beyond national jurisdiction are currently being negotiated by the International Seabed Authority, which is an independent organization established by the United Nation that regulates all mining activity on the seafloor. So just so folks can know how regulations may be set up or not 
not be regulated very well. And the other thing that I was reading is that to remove the metal from hydrothermal vent or an underwater mountain, they'll have to shatter rock in a manner similar to land-based extraction. And nodules are isolated chunks of rock on the seabed that typically range from the size of a golf ball to that of a grapefruit. So they can be lifted from the sediment with relative ease. And there's a lot of other information out there. I just wanted to mention a few things because I could imagine that it's a new area of study for many people as it's getting up and going. And it's something that I think we all really need to watch for. And, you know, I just really can't help but really think about the hubris of deep sea mining similar to that of space colonization. You know, it's it's not only that we know so little about the short and long-term environmental impacts of deep sea mining, but so little about the landscape of the seabed itself, like you were mentioning. You know, a place which is not barren, but teeming with mountains and canyons, hot springs, giant clams, 10 feet long tube worms, and complex ecosystems that have taken millions of years to grow in a space of complete darkness. But currently, the batteries for an electric car require 187 pounds of copper, 123 pounds of nickel, and 15 pounds each of manganese and cobalt. Manganese. So if we want just 1 billion electric cars, this would require more metal than all current known land-based supplies, meaning that deep-sea mining would be imminent in going forward with green energy. But at the same time, Leaders across the Pacific have asked for a 10-year moratorium on seabed mining from 2020 to 2030 to allow research on the impacts of mining. So in my mind, this highlights the violence of green energy and the detriment that the blue continent will experience. In the past months, we've seen a global slowing of industry and production at a mass scale, and I'm wondering what you might say about our approach to green energy and how it should also be supplemented by this same sort of scaling down. Well, yes, I, I agree 100% with, with what you said. I really loved your vivid description of the biodiversity in the ocean. And I think, as you point out, it's so important that we critique green technology, blue technologies, you know, especially because they seem to be premised on the capitalist idea of endless growth, like making a billion electric cars. And I feel like your connection in terms of, you know, slowing down is so important because I feel like that's exactly what needs to happen. We can't kind of combat climate change by simply applying the same principles of growth to these green technologies, but instead we need to really seriously consider degrowth and different visions of a circular economy and of sustainable futures. And we really do need to listen more to the wisdom of indigenous peoples, especially in terms of developing an an ecological consciousness and a way to live more sustainably with the natural environment and with our more than human species. And I feel like by doing so, we can slow down, we can degrowth, we can you know, value the world differently than capitalist values. And you know, we need to respect the limits of the earth and you know, we need to not base so much on, so much of our motives on the profit motive. And so that is, is going to be, I think, the, the struggle of this century 
And I know so much of the damage caused is, is already baked in and we're going to have to live through difficult times. But I think to kind of circle back to the beginning of, of this conversation that it becomes a moment of, of transformation and of deep reflection and to think about our interrelationship to all things and to each other and, and how we can really foster ethics of care and the ethics of love and there are so many people like you know like yourself who are educating us that we need to learn from and listen to and hopefully the growing of, of the global climate movement and growing movements towards more socialist based governments or economies will really bring us the change that we need Rings of Fire, Honolulu, Hawaii. We host our daughter's first birthday party during the hottest April in history. Outside, my dad grills meat over charcoal. Inside, my mom steams rice and roasts vegetables. They've traveled from California, where drought carves trees into tinder. Paradise is burning. When our daughter's first fever spiked, the doctor said it's a sign she's fighting infection. Bloodshed surges with global temperatures which know no borders. If her fever doesn't break, the doctor continued, take her to the emergency room. Airstrikes detonate hospitals in Yemen, Iraq, Afghanistan, South Sudan. When she crowned, my wife said, it felt like rings of fire. Volcanoes erupt along Pacific fault lines. Sweltering heat waves scorch Australia. Forests in Indonesia are raised for palm oil plantations. Their ashes flock like ghost birds to our distant rib cages. Still, I crave an unfiltered cigarette, even though I quit years ago and my breath no longer smells like my grandpa's overflowing ashtray, his parched cough still punctures the black lungs of cancer and denial. If she struggles to breathe, the doctor advised, give her an asthma inhaler. But tonight we sing happy birthday and blow out the candles together. Smoke trembles as if we all exhaled the same flammable wish. Well, thank you, Craig. This has been such a beautiful conversation. I've thoroughly enjoyed every moment. <laughs> it's been so nice to talk to you. And yeah, I'm excited to listen to this episode again. So thank you so much for your time with us. Well, thank you so much for having me and for all the work that you do. You truly are an inspiration. Thanks for listening to another episode of For the Wild Podcast. I'm audio producer Andrew Stores. The music you heard today was from Eliza Edens, Ize Goodfriend, and Mary Beth Carolyn. I'd like to thank our host and founder, Ayana Young, as well as the rest of our podcast production team, Aidan McRae, Carter Lou McElroy, Francesca Glassbell, 
Hannah Wilton, Aaron Wise, Erica Ekram, and Melanie Younger. If you enjoy today's conversation, please rate us on iTunes or wherever else you get your podcast. If you'd like to stay up to date with our projects and offerings, subscribe to our newsletter by visiting forthewild.world slash subscribe.